This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Natalia Shpulova-Said. I'm host of New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm delighted to speak today with my guests, uh, Catherine Grenier and Amanda Buchel, about the volume that they, they edited and recently published, Cultures of Memory in the, the 19th Century, Consuming Commemoration, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2020. Catherine Grenier is the author of Tourism and Identity in Scotland. She's historian of modern Britain with spe- specialization in 19th century Scotland. Um, her book, um, Tourism and Identity in Scotland, Creating Caledonia, uh, won honorable mention for the Frank Watson Book Prize for the best book in Scottish history published in 2005-2006. Her current research examines uh, Sabbatarianism in 19th century Scotland. Amanda Buchel specializes in 19th century history and the history of the Old South. She's a contributor to the Southern Middle Class in the long 19th century, uh, which was published by Louisiana State uh, University Press in uh, 2011. Amanda has worked on several projects for the Virginia Center for Digital History, including the value of the shadow and digitization of the annual bibliography of slavery and world slaving, originally published as a supplement to the Journal of Slavery and Abolition. She has served on the content team for the International African American Museum and as editorial contributor for the Low Country Digital History Initiative's online exhibits on African passages, Low Country adaptations, and the James Pius Day book, The Account of a Charlestown Merchant, 1760-1765. Hello, Kathy and Amanda, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. The volume focuses on the 19th century. How does this century stand out in terms of commemoration practices and in terms of how memorial practices were understood? Amanda, you want to start? <laughs> you know, we were interested in this period because it seemed to be um, a period when we really began to see some of the commemorative practices that we see today. Um, and the... the um, in particular, the kind of commercialization of memory 
and of consumerism and the fact that as you see the rise of a, a growing middle class, objects of consumerism and, and these um, sometimes replicas of, of items, um, these become accessible to a larger number of people. More people are able to travel, they're able to participate in some of the uh, secular pilgrimages of, com of commemoration that we see here. And, um, and, and so it becomes a time when you have the growth of this commemorative uh, culture and one that's very much also tied to the, the development of a, a culture of sentimentality in the 19th century that's particularly tied with the, the rise of the middle class. So all of these things kind of come together uh, in this period. Mm -hmm. Added to that, I think that we see in the 19th century a time of a lot of new nations, new emphasis on national identity, of um, nationalism, as well as um, imperialism all of which um, involve teaching lessons of patriotism, teaching lessons of loyalty, um, and memory becomes a big part of how those lessons are taught through monuments, through processions, through, um, uh, through tourism, through commercial practices, but also through very overt um, political practices, public um, public memory becomes a big part of ideas of nationalism and national identity. So that makes the 19th century powerful in that sense too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm intrigued by this statement that you just made that the 19th uh, uh, century, of course, uh, is marked by the development of uh, nationalism, uh, which was somehow combined with Im uh, imperialism as well. Uh, but uh, you said that new nations appeared. And I'm wondering how um, new nations were represented or how new nations found their ways right in that imperialism imperialistic narratives which were based on um different com commemorative um practices you know i the new nations of course don't just appear mm -hmm. they're they're formulated they're fought over they carve their way out um you know, I think that happens in a couple of ways. You can talk about American history in the 19th century as forming a nation, especially, as I understand, in the period after the Civil War. Um, you can certainly look at um, nationalism in Europe in this period, um, but you can also look at um, empire and how ultimately, maybe late in the century of the early 20th century, those people who have been um, occupied start really overtly carving out their own national identity in contrast to those who have ruled against them or ruled them. Mm -hmm. um, Amanda, would would you like to add anything to this? Well, in um, sort of defining who is the nation in the 19th century, and that's certainly something that. Um, Two of our essays in particular look at in the aftermath of the Civil War, the American Civil War, is um, the place of African-Americans, of newly freed African-Americans in a reunified United States in the aftermath of the Civil War. Um, and the, the appropriation of or the assertion of control over public space as a way of inserting themselves into um, 
the, the public sphere and, and, and political life in a very overt way. And, and then using that kind of commemoration to, um, to protest those who keep them out. Uh, and, and then too, um, the, we've got another essay that, that looks at a, um, a former uh, prisoner of war prison that had been relocated from Richmond, Virginia up to Chicago in the aftermath of, of the Civil War. And that becomes a, a, a space for, it's a very complicated space, but one of the things that's going on there is um, a question of, of, of reunification mm-hmm. and an effort to sort of bury the, the divisions and, and reassert a unified American identity that often runs counter to the experience of the actual prisoners who have been held there. And so it's kind of a contested space in that sense. Um, but it's very much about sort of re, recon, re, reconstructing in that way, but, but recreating a unified United States. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, yeah, you mentioned uh, contested space, and it's also uh, one of my interests, uh, cont- contestations and contested space. So uh, in your opinion, how does one uh, deal with contestations and whether those contestations were somehow dealt with in the 19th century or maybe the 19th century was uh, uh, some time period when the contestations were created? Do you mean how do we as historians deal with this or how yes. do people yes. time? Like, mm-hmm. as, as a historian. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that we wanted to show through the book, which a lot of historians have talked about, is the way that um, individual choice becomes a factor. The actions of individuals, the agency of individuals, um, how, um, how we remember a, a space, how we remember the past is expressed through the choices that individuals make. And um, and we wanna make sure there's that sense of sort of the agency of individuals mm-hmm. in helping to decide what a space means. Um, you know, the essay by Ashley Towell on um, Randolph Cemetery in Columbia, South Carolina in the um, reconstruction era is maybe a good example of that. You know, local African-Americans chose, we want to remember that this man was killed and how he was killed. Putting money into buying the cemetery, um, choosing to participate in the processions is making a statement about how they want their history to be remembered they can't control the whole situation because the context changes and as reconstruction or I guess the the white reaction to reconstruction turns more violent, um, their ability to control the situation is limited, but they can continue to express their voices. Um, And I think that's a big part of how the space gets contested. Mm -hmm. And to take it in particular with that example to to use public streets to as as part of a procession to use the event of mourning as a time that's sort of a sacred time where that where they can where African Americans can take that space where white Charles, uh, white Colombians will allow them to use that space in, in that way um, so it's a very sort of strategic use mm-hmm. 
um, an assertion of, of, um, of belonging in the public streets of the state capital of South Carolina, and of course, being this being the state that started the American Civil War, and that, um, as with many other Southern states, had recently been, um, you know, involved in, in as, as Kathy says, often violent efforts to um, to turn back the um, the uh, reconstruction of the South. Um, you know, what was also interesting in some of these uh, essays was the, the, the question of, of monuments. And so we see that in, um, certainly in, in, in Danielle Nielsen's look at the space of the Durbers in, um, in, in British India and the way that British tourists were encouraged to see the sites that had been associated with the 1857 uprising uh, as sites that were exclusively having to do with uh, a British imperial presence in India, rather than ones that had a long uh, Indian past to them. And so constructing things like the Kanpur Memorial Well and, and guidebooks that encouraged people to take particular tourist routes and to understand them in a particular way as they did so um, is really this, this assertion of, 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 of control over that space. And then kind of as a, a counterpoint to that is the final essay in the book, which looks at um, the way that that um, contemporary Indians are looking at the legacy of colonialism in Indian identity today, and often sort of turning on its head or questioning that through through artwork, through photography, through um, through sculpture, and um, again, uh, um, yeah, playing with these these ideas from the, the colonial past. Mm-hmm. Um. I know that uh, this question will be beyond uh, your book, but can we draw parallels between the 19th century and the 21st century in terms of the monuments? Um, Last uh, summer, there was a lot of controversy around uh, monuments in the States, and I would say it's also true for other countries as well. Absolutely. And this was, I mean, this was a project whose genesis really came out of that, Mm -hmm. um, at, uh, um, the, the, the conference that it came out of was in the process of being planned at the time of the, the um, uh, 2015 massacre of churchgoers at um, Emanuel Church in downtown Charleston. And that, of course, sparked and, and, and built on a movement that was already underway in terms of challenging monuments. So the roads must fall uh, controversy was already going on. And then, you know, we have this sort of wave in 2015, another wave in 2017 after the, the killing of, of Heather Heyer in, um, in Charlottesville. And now you're right. Now we're looking at that today. And for us, particularly in Charleston, and both of us are, are in Charleston now, uh, the, the monument to John C. Calhoun, which had long been on Marion Square within eyeshot of or eyesight of, of the Mother Emanuel Church, which most of us thought would never come down, was actually removed from its pedestal. And that was a monument that had long been contested. It had long been opposed by members of the African-American community. Oral history suggests that it's actually, it was raised up onto a hundred some foot plinth because so many members of the African-American community had um, uh, done everything they could to deface the monument when it was lower down. So there was a long history of contest around that monument itself. And this was very much part of what we were thinking about throughout this process mm-hmm. is that meaning for today 
of, of memorial space and ways that it's been both interpreted, misinterpreted, the way the, 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 the contested memories of 19th century history in the present day. Um, Kathy, do you want to? You know, I think um, Kelly Bushnell and her essay in the book on um, Moby Dick starts with this really interesting um, anecdote about a whale that was killed who died in 2007, and they found embedded in his back a harpoon that would have been used in the 1880s. So this poor whale carried around this harpoon for you know, decades and decades. Um, and it just struck me as I was sort of prepping for this talk about that as sort of a metaphor for the way the 19th century passed is, is so much a part of the 21st yeah. century. You know, that harpoon is still here and it might be covered up with the blubber, but it, it, we're still carrying it around in a lot of ways. Mira Waits in her essay also talked about the spectral relationship of the past with the present which I think is another interesting way to think about the past, that the 19th century past is really hovering over mm -hmm. um, the conflicts that we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think, you know, really reckoning with what the 19th century meant has got to be a part of um, how in this country we think about race release relations, how, um, the areas of the former British Empire still have to think about those same issues. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Another example which I can but mention, The Gun with the Wind, this um, film which was very well done. Um, but uh, again, there is so much controversy around the film today. And uh, I had a chance to, look, uh, to watch that introduction with which that film appears today. Uh, and uh, I thought that it's quite um, a drastic turn, right? How we understand this cultural artifacts or how we un understand this cultural material, so to speak, um, from the perspective of the 21st century. And it gives some, uh, some um, perspectives, not only on our present day, but on how uh, these events were perceived uh, at the beginning of the uh, 20th century, uh, how the 20th, the 20th uh, century understood the events of the 19th century, but also what kind of memory the 20th century wanted to promote. Um, so do you have any comments on this perception of uh, Gone with the Wind today? There are many Americans who take it as a um, an accurate portrayal of of the South and of race relations, and so it is very much that has a, a long legacy in terms of yeah one thread of the kind of contested memory of the nineteenth century for us. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. And at the same time, there's other Americans who say, oh, it's just such a fun movie and it's such a romantic story and why do we have to ruin that? And 
um, you know, so that makes it more difficult too, because some people see these things as nice cultural artifacts that they want to maintain. And, you know, oh, if people see them as, as difficult, well, you know, that's, you know, how big a deal is that? Mm -hmm. A lot of people, it's a huge big deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and another thing that um, it makes me think about is how sometimes we are reluctant to deal with these difficulties and controversies and complexities, and it's just easier to dismiss those, but sometimes it's um, worth probably looking into those complexities that give some depth uh, and some different insights into the history and into um, how we remember uh, some historical events. So in the introduction part, you outline a theoretical background for the volume. What's the core of the volume's theoretical framework? I think it is what Kathy had mentioned that um, that so much of this is about the ways that individuals mm-hmm. um, remember the past, both their own past. So the first part of the book really deals with um, sort of more private and individual memory making, and the second part deals with civic memories and that kind of interplay between individual memory and say, sort of shorthand collective memory, but uh, um, memories that are formed by a group and that are sort of embraced by a group. Um, Kathy, would you like to uh, comment on that? Um, and added to that, I guess, is, is thinking about the way that, or I guess sort of what Amanda said, but to take this a little further, the way that individual memories are formed in interaction with broader societies mm-hmm. and cultures. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so looking at the, the sites of memory, um, like monuments or um, tourist pilgrimages, which are teaching people to look at the past in a particular way and the extent to which that meaning is fluid. Do different people respond to it differently? In different time periods, do we respond to it differently? Um how do these sites of memories change? How do individuals mm-hmm. make choices about responding to mm-hmm. Oh, thank you, Kathy. Actually, my next question is connected with your current uh, uh, comment. So your volume specifies the interplay of the private and the public. Uh, would you elaborate on this component in terms of commemorative practices in the 19th century? And the reason I ask this question is uh, I believe uh, our understanding of the public today is a little bit different from the 19th century or even the 18th century. Uh, century. Uh, I remember reading this book by Habermas, uh, who was uh, describing the formation of the public uh, through coffee houses and through the salons. But uh, for him, the public was some place where the individuals could somehow deliver themselves, right? Where they could share their ideas. So it was some, uh, I, I don't want to say ideal place, but it was some place where you could share your opinions uh, or you could share your ideas. Uh, today, uh, there is, I would say, the overwhelming presence of the public because we all connected to some social media and 
as the moment, the second some stuff goes on the social media, it's it's not private anymore. So it, it transforms, it changes. So how was this public sphere or, or this interplay of the private and the public um, presented in the 19th century? Or maybe some uh, specific examples, like you mentioned the monuments, but um, how um, the individual, right, was uh, somehow inserted in this public narrative or pub- a public discourse. The interesting things for me, and because there's such a variety of of essays, it's a little hard to generalize, but one of the interesting things for me was the the response of the former prisoners of war to this now sort of public, but public by admission fee space of of a museum, um, and to the the story, the narrative that that museum told. their very personal responses. So mm-hmm. it was a space that became commodified and um, was also used to to market the cigars and the candies made by the person who sponsored the museum. And to uh, there, was, there was a restaurant there and a hotel associated with it. And so it became this kind of marketing gimmick as well as a hotel or as, as, a, as a prison and um, and sort of a cabinet of curiosities as well, of sort of the weird and wonderful to try and attract people into this site. And, but for the prisoners, it was, that was often deeply troubling because this was a site of suffering for them and a very individual suffering. And their experience of the space, um, Angela Riotto, the author of, of this essay, describes how some of them would use coming into the space and they would run and find the place on the floor where they had lain when they were in the prison. And so it is this very intensely personal experience of a public space for them. And at the same time, there's a whole genre of, of literature of prisoners, te- former prisoners telling their stories and explaining, kind of inserting themselves into a narrative of patriotism and of sacrifice for the nation that they had, that their experience sort of put them outside of. They had been captured. And of course, in some ways, this is this has resonance with current discussions about the nature, uh, you know, what it means to be capture and be a prisoner of war, um, but, but asserting manliness and asserting sacrifice, even though they had been imprisoned. And so, um, so you've got that kind of um, an, an intense kind of civic interplay of the two. Um, you know, on a much more kind of personal level, we have an essay in there that deals with, um, with autograph albums. This is Jen Black's look at that. And that it's, you know, this is very much within a community of friends and it's personal inscriptions, but they're intended to be read by the community to help create community and preserve a community um, and a kind of a moment in time of somebody's life. Uh, and, and as you're writing these inscriptions, you're very uh, conscious of how you're going to be portrayed and that your character is coming out in these, uh, in these inscriptions. Uh, and so there's a very self, it's much like social media today, there's a very self-conscious self-portrayal for a semi-public sphere within that. So you've got, again, both in the, the, the kind of overtly private and the more public mm-hmm. civic spaces, you've got that. Mm-hmm. Kathy? I think Amanda summed that up. Uh-huh. Uh, thank you. And uh, I really enjoyed reading uh, that essay about the photos of those who passed away. And it, it wasn't only just interesting, it was creepy to some extent. <laughs> but uh, but it also... You see the photographs? <laughs> it also gave some uh, insight into how the 19th century... Uh, 
residents, people were perceiving not only themselves, but how they saw their family, for example, stories in terms of a bigger picture, in terms of of their country as well, and how it was difficult to let go, right, of those who passed away and how they tried to bring them back in this or that, or in, in one or the other form, but uh, still, yeah, well, uh, I, won't, I won't lie to you, it was creepy a little bit. <laughs> And we talked about this when we were when we were talking about that essay, and the fact that particularly with the photographs of children, um, and again, this is something that's a little strange for us in the present day, is we have so many photographs of ourselves. But when a family member died, do you have something to do? You have a photograph of them when they were alive to remember them by, and you know, and and so partly this new medium and this new technology creates a way of memorializing this 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 person and this member of the, the the family and it is creepy for us today but you know we were talking about you know even when you have a, a child who's who mm. is either stillborn or dies immediately after death that we still have um some of these practices of trying to to remember there was an article in new york times i think while we were still working on the book about some you know, some cultures in the United States where people do these post-mortem photographs, like posing their family members. There was a picture of a man who I think had been a boxer and he was in his boxing clothes mm-hmm. where he was dead. Um, and, and some of that same process of um, sort of transgressing across death and remembering that person in the way they um, felt most powerful and most, mm-hmm. most alive. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> The idea in the 19th century of um, that the the, um, the the spirit photography in particular, this hope that this new technological medium medium could could capture a soul, could capture an image of a soul, and you know it wasn't just you know sort of wishful thinking, but it was this kind of hope in a new technology that was also very much kind of of the 19th century that was, was sort of fascinating. So there's both the kind of morbid aspect of it and also this just kind of moment of experimentation that that was fascinating about that essay. Mm-hmm. Uh, as um, you, Amanda, and Kiasi already mentioned, um, in spite of the fact that we are in the 21st century, we still feel, right, not only see, but also feel the 19th century. Uh, but um, how would you describe the main difference between the uh, commemoration consumption in the 19th century and the 21st century, if there are any differences in your opinion? What defines or what defined these main differences? I think actually, this is something we were talking about. There's actually a lot of crossover. Um, and Kathy, do you want to, this was something that you were talking about. Do you think that a lot of our forms of memory today still mm-hmm. draw on the 19th century photography you know the the social media that seems very similar to the albums that amanda was talking about um monuments and tourism travel all those things that we do to remember the past um museums are growing out of 19th century forms mm-hmm. i do wonder as you ask that if there might be today more fluidity maybe in what things mean or 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 um mm-hmm. i don't know the public meeting the public mm-hmm. space mm-hmm. around them you know I, I i think that perhaps in the 19th century if say you build a monument to 
I don't know, Cecil Rhodes, um, there's an overt meaning and other meanings are a little bit more silent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think, especially now in the 21st century, I think we're much more likely to have a lot of meanings out there in the public very, very quickly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. A lot of different interpretations, maybe. Amanda? Yes, I agree with that. that, That's an interesting point. Things are moving so much faster Mm -hmm. and there is a real sense of of instability in meaning and and then contests with that you know mm-hmm. people who feel threatened by that mm-hmm. and and efforts to shape the meaning kind of at the time on the ground but what we were also we were struck by um that many of the forms that we use really are they're updated but but they're very similar so again in the and the aftermath of the the Emanuel massacre charleston saw a series of marches and protests and it was it was this um appropriating space it was this asserting control over public space. It was photographing it. It was recording it in the newspapers. It was them posting it on social media. I was there. And so again, it sort of becomes part of, of, of that conversation, that self-portrayal um, of what I, whoever I am, um, did at that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a, an image that a local artist designed of a palmetto tree, which is the symbol of South Carolina, with these nine doves flying away from it, you know, sort of turning into these these doves. And that gets turned into a number of kind of commemorative items. So you see it on t-shirts and you see it on beer koozies and you see it on, uh, you know, mugs and everything else. And, you know, and people buy that to assert a connection to that moment and to what that means about the community. And, you know, it sort of struck us that the 19th century is where you really begin to see the, the creation um, of, of souvenirs, mm-hmm. of sort of mass-produced souvenirs, and the use of those by individuals to, to remember having participated in something and to, you know, again, to have this kind of connection to it. Um, and, and so it's sort of the, the forms have been updated, but, but a lot of them really do have their roots in the 19th century. Yeah, I, I think there is some irony and paradox in this statement that um, Amanda, you and uh, Cassie um, made about uh, fluidity. Uh, it seems like we have more devices to remember, but at the same time, we seem to remember less. And, and there is there is the silence that uh, was mentioned as well. And I was uh, thinking about the um, notion, which was mentioned uh, in the preface, I believe, by Guy Biner, uh, about social forgetting. Uh, would you comment a little bit on this notion of social forgetting, which I, I believe is very important uh, in terms of um, commemorative practices as well? Yeah, uh- the ways in which we forget the past is as powerful as the ways in which we remember them, right? So, so we can forget how terrible slavery was, but remember um, how beautiful a plantation is, yeah. right? Um, uh, you know, plantations have become very contested spaces around Charleston lately. Um, you know, physically beautiful um, buildings and, and beautiful landscapes and lovely places to walk around and weddings there because makes great photographs. And then people start saying, but you're forgetting that these are essentially labor camps. And why do you want to get married at a labor camp? Um, and so, yes, I think forgetting is, 
is very, very powerful. And I, I think you're right that one of the things that's happening now is the effort to not forget, mm -hmm. um, to be more intentional about what we are remembering and how we are remembering, um, which does change the meaning of a space. And it comes up in some of the, the essays, and particularly I'm thinking about um, uh, the, the one that deals with South Africa and the commemoration of um, one of the, the South African Times rebels against colonial rule. And then, of course, at first, he's, he's depicted as a rebel, and the two loyal natives who helped to put down this rebellion are the ones who are commemorated. And there's this sort of forgetting then of um, under first colonialism and then under apartheid of, um, of, of black South Africans. And then, of course, what we see in the late 20th and, and 21st centuries is the reinscription of those people into the space. Mm -hmm. And the, the question of, of remembering too, I mean, in, in his case, um, there's a township that whose, whose occupants named very deliberately insisted on naming the township for him. So this kind of counter remembering in the face of a very deliberate top-down effort to forget mm -hmm. um, and to make forgetting sort of a cornerstone of the, the national narrative. Mm -hmm. um, so, so it is that kind of contestation about what do we remember, mm -hmm. what do we forget. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah, um, and uh, I think we can also add some international perspective there as well. Again, speaking about Gun with the Wind and plantations, which were just mentioned, uh, and as uh, someone who comes from uh, Eastern Europe and uh, from post-Soviet country. That's the film that we saw about uh, the Old South, and that's how we would think about the Old South based on this film. Of course, there were other things, there were other books, and but the film itself was so popular. Um, and um, yes, we would pay attention to these beautiful costumes, to the beautiful environment, to the beautiful plantation, but other things, since they were silenced, they were not, so to speak, activated for us, those who were exposed to the film. Um, oh, so uh, I also would like to ask you about the process of trivialization and banalization of commemorative practices and how they internalized in cultural memory. I guess you can see that often in tourism. Mm -hmm. Tourism can tend to really sort of trivialize the past, um, it, things have to be um, shortened to fit a guidebook. You, um, a trip to a place might be very brief, so you have to tell things quickly. Um, you know, we have a couple of essays on tourism, the one on India and the so-called sort of mutiny pilgrimages, which Amanda already referred to, where uh, British tourists would travel around the sites where the 1857 Indian uprising happened and learn only what happened in 1857 um, and not the bigger history surrounding it. And of course, not um, the brutality with which the British put down this uprising. Um, so a very selective view of history there. Um, uh, Johann Reusch, Reusch also wrote an essay on um, tourism in um, the German Confederation mm -hmm. right after the end of the Napoleonic Wars and the attempts of tourists to um, use sort of hiking, pedestrian travel as a way to 
sort of create a, a notion of what Germany is, but that too is a very selective um, vision, which um, could be seen to sort of reduce national identity to a notion of hiking and ruggedness and sort of manly fitness. Mm-hmm. And it can be, it, you know, it was sort of boiled down outside of, Ger- uh, outside of Berlin, the, the Kreuzberg mountain, mm-hmm. um, this 217 foot mountain that, uh, middle-class Berliners would go out and summit this thing and kind of it was sort of landscaped to be, you know, sort of the, uh, the, the, the prototypical German wilderness. And, you know, it's a Saturday afternoon sort of pilgrimage that you go on with your family and you maybe have, you know, it, it's a, and, and yet it is something that, that he argues um, is, is part of a middle-class sort of assertion of identity and connection with the um, with the state and with this this German history that it increasingly is being used to define what a, a unified Germany is, um, so so yes, I mean there are the sort of ways that that these experiences or these items are um, sort of boiled down for mass consumption, and yet at the same time, you know that then allows the masses to participate in the construction of these shared identities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, do you have this opportunity to share this research with your students? And if you do, what's their response? Kathy? Uh, sometimes it depends on the books that we're using. I actually was just chatting with a student before this and he asked me what work I was working on. And I said, well, we just published this book and you're going to be on your podcast. Mm-hmm. So. There's a little publicity. <laughs> um, it can get touchy because mm-hmm. students too have favored sort of myths of the past that they sometimes don't want challenged. Um, I, you know, I, I felt sometimes as undergraduate studying history that, you know, my favorite stories of the past were getting destroyed and our students sometimes feel like that. And so um, talking about the difference between memory and history is an important thing to do with students. Um, I think it can be done sometimes more easily when I'm talking about European history or British history that they don't feel a personal investment with than Amanda can do, for instance, in talking about the American South, which he obviously does, but um, touches our students in a much more immediate way. And because of everything we've already said about the power of past and personal identity, it gets difficult when someone is challenging that, as important as that work is to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see, though, using, and I actually have thought about using for this semester, the essay on Randolph Cemetery. And um, again, sort of as a um, talking about the construction of monuments that in some ways, um, it, it almost, it does sort of, uh, the, the discussion about a, a monument to an assassinated um, black senator in South Carolina in the immediate aftermath of the American Civil War. Um, in some ways, it takes the conversation a little bit away from the question of, does X monument come down now? What do we do about X monument here? And instead, it becomes a way to talk about what does a monument mean? What does the dedication ceremony mean? What do processions mean for civic life and for civic belonging? Uh, you know, so that's that's one way that I might use it. The the essay on um, on on the German 
pedestrian tourism is also sort of a way of, um, you know, in many ways, I mean, this is particular to Germany, but it is also something that we are seeing in the 19th century in the United States as artists and others are seeking uh, in the natural world something that is inherently American and something around which to construct an American identity and using things like the revolutionary past and the wars with Native Americans to define um, a, a white America really as an America, but, um, to, but to define what they saw as an America at the time. Um, so last of the Mohicans um, or the Hudson River School of Painting. And to kind of talk about, to use the German domestic tourism to talk about ideas about nature and about um, history in, in a slightly different context. And to, I guess, to contextualize what's going on in the United States as part of a, a, a sort of international, intellectual, and nationalistic mm -hmm. sort of trend, mm -hmm. um, I could see, I could see both of those. Mm -hmm. um, something that uh, was mentioned by Kathy, the difference between history and memory. So, how would you describe the main difference between history and memory? How do we differentiate between those two? That is always a tough one. Um, I, I think in many ways history is the way we study the past, the questions we ask of the past, um, the way we research the past. Memory can often be um, sort of our inherent, a kind of inherited understanding, a, a received, I guess received understanding would be a better way. Um, often an uncritical understanding of the past. Mm -hmm. um, and history, um, I hope, is, um, is much more questioning, it's much more exploratory, it's much more investigating than simply receiving. Amanda? I think that uncritical is, is mm -hmm. the, the key there. And that memory is, too, uh, something deeply personal. In whatever it means, it is it is deeply personal, and so a challenge to memory is a challenge to your own identity, um, which makes it a very sort of touchy ground. Mm -hmm. Is your current research in any way connected with any of the aspects that was covered in this volume? Not for me so much. Mm -hmm. um, my current research looks at um, at uh, early credit reporting. So in, I guess it, the, the crossover is that um, some of the early credit reports are one of the few sources we have for looking at kind of middle class businesses. So it is that world of sort of 19th century middle class formation. Um, and, and in a sense, these are um, little biographies of merchants in a, in a business context. But that's, that's about, it's more in, in teaching and in grappling with Charleston's mm -hmm. history and memory. Um, in the classroom, that's where I, you know, I'm sort of employing the ideas that we're thinking about here in this volume much more directly. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you. Kathy? A little bit. Um, it, it's more tied, I think, to my earlier project on tourism mm -hmm. in the country Scotland, which was very much an exploration of identity and how that's expressed and disseminated through tourism. But I am still more broadly working on the issue of 19th century Scottish identity. Um, but how it's expressed in religious practices. Mm -hmm. And some of that does have to do with memory. Um, 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 there's this very um, 
among some people, it's very strict observance of the Sabbath in the 19th century, like Sunday is the day everything shuts down. And a lot of that is based on the notion that Scotland is a um, covenanted nation, that, that as a nation they've made a, 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 a pact with God, and that has to be maintained, and the Sabbath is the symbol of that. So the Sabbath does become part of memory, the, the memory of the covenant with God. And, and the question is, in an industrial age, can you really keep that going? Maybe you actually need the trains. Maybe you need shops to be open. Maybe workers need a day that they can go to the countryside and explore nature. Um, and, and industry makes that possible. So how do you reconcile that memory of a kind of idealized past with the needs of an industrial society? Mm -hmm. It's interesting. That ties it more closely to Mora's work on the votive processions and the kind of memory of and the sort of connection of, of religion to community through these objects and, and to the way that 19th century bourgeois observers are looking back at this kind of idealized culture of a fishing community. Yeah. And you know, that connection actually of covenant and memory really just came to me right now. So actually a good insight for me to remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much, Amanda and Kathy. Uh, I wish you good luck on your uh, research. And again, congratulations on the publication of this volume, uh, which, uh, which is fascinating. Fascinating because it really shows us how much of the 19th century we still have in the 21st century and what we can do with that. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. It was an interesting dis and enjoyable discussion. Today I spoke with Catherine Granier and Amanda Muschel, uh, editors of Cultures of Memory in the 19th Century, Consuming, Mem uh, Consuming Commemoration, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2020. Thank you so much for listening to the um, New Books in Literary Studies podcast. <laughs>